Okay. Now we're live and recording. Are we on Sermon Audio yet? Or? Uh, I'm seeing us there. Yes, we are. Okay, so there's no reason not to go. No, we're good. Okay, well, we're going to start on time, and we're going to... That's amazing. Uh, Look at us. We should get some award. Uh, I'm going to take the glasses off because I can't see anything with the glasses, except the softball from 60 feet. <sighs> August 6, 2023, lecture discussion number 200 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job... Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. I should start by saying I've got, uh, I meet with a neurologist on Monday the 7th and I meet with the gastroenterologist and, I, and they're going to do an endoscopy and a colonoscopy on me on the 17th. So I will be back on the 27th. That assumes that it doesn't snow and, or that uh, Christ delays him as yet. Hey, if you were here for lecture 199, that's July 22nd, 2023, uh, and by here I mean you have invested some time either by the video or the audio into lecture number 199 and thus uh, have some familiarity with where we left off. And I should add for anyone who's entered into the cliffside arena for the first time, and some people this is their first time, and usually they're already gone by now. I've gone through half a page and they'd be gone. Uh, but if you've been here for the first time, knowing where we left off generally has no connectivity to where we're headed. Uh, my sense of direction is subject to debate, and the debate being, does he possess a sense of direction? That's the, that's the key question. And if one were to conclude that I do have in, indeed uh, directional capacity, is it ever operating? Is it ever oper- is it operable, I guess would be more. And that's a reasonable question, because I actually don't seem to connect things very often, and there's a reason for that. It's called an inductive style, and it uh, it actually, in my opinion, works really well, and, and I'm going to read a letter from somebody who is starting to grasp how to handle this kind of process, especially when it's applied to the Bible. Actually, so I'm trying to say, as untenable as it may appear, I have a plan, and the plan last lecture was to restart and to reset and to refresh, and, and being that my health has caused a moratorium of, what, what has it been, nine weeks or so, eight, nine weeks? A lot. And the plan this Sunday is to address the obvious questions that continue to flow out of Job 1.6. Job 1.6 is this astonishing passage where there's this convention, this convening of the entirety of the angelic host, both fallen and faithful, and Satan is there. It's an incredible thing to even contemplate, much less understand. We can't imagine it what really was going on. And do not pass over the magnitude of that assembly. I would suggest that this is a historic, unprecedented event. And the case can be made for isolated. It might be the only time this has ever happened in all of history. Is that the faithful angels, the fallen angels, with Satan there, all in the same place, listening to God and Satan. I don't believe it ever happened before. It requires the fall of Satan for that to happen. I could go on and defend that position. And, but it's not, and, and, and again, I, I keep saying it might be the only time outside of Revelation 12. I don't count Revelation 12 because that's a war. This is not a war. This is a gathering for information. So again, the angelic realm is gathered together and the fallen are there led by Satan and he's in attendance and there's a combining of the faithful and the fallen and you have to begin immediately asking yourself why is this happening what's the point of this what caused this 
what traces back to, a, to this, what can I trace this event back to? And obviously, I believe that that's Satan's activities. And primarily, the Bible identifies his discovery of Job. He's been out looking for Job, or someone like Job. And that's the primary purpose of this audience. He's found Job. And he has intentions. He's going to utilize Job. And, but as, and that's a simple explanation, because what is always true, there are multi-levels here. This isn't about Job. Now, Job is the reason they're doing this, but this isn't about Job. Job is the evidentiary component. What I mean by that, clearly the Lord God Almighty wills that Job be put on display. He wants Job on display in front of all of the angels, fallen and unfallen. Now, why does, why does God want that? He wants, he's intending to make Job a spectacle for the angels, 1 Corinthians 4.9, where he does the same thing. 1 Corinthians 4.9, as we discussed briefly, in lecture 199, I think it's 199, I'm not sure. That's where the uh, Apostle Paul says that God has put the apostles on display. The execution of the, depo- the apostles is on display. We're, we're being made a spectacle for the angels. So, 1 Corinthians 4.9 is directly related to Job 1.6. Now, keep in mind the roles here. Satan is presenting. He's representative of the prosecutorial position. So, Job is providing the evidence, the witnessing, if you wish to think of it that way, if you will. He is the evidence. That places God, the Creator God, in what position? If Satan is the prosecutor and Job is the evidence, what is God in this, in this trial set format? Well, he clearly, the Creator God, the Lord God, is the defendant here. And the angels are assigned as the tribunal. They're the adjudication aspect of this. So I have a judge, a jury, a prosecutor, evidence. That's what's going on. And obviously God is being accused by the prosecutor, the accuser. Revelation 12:10, Zechariah 3, 1 through 2, Job 1, 8 through 11. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser here. He's accusing God. Now think about what it takes to accuse God. It happens all the time in humanity. We're always accusing God of causing problems, aren't we? He's the one that's caused all of this turmoil. He's Every time there's a natural disaster, we can't call them natural. They're unnatural disasters because they never were natural. They were never intended to be this way. We're in a fallen state, but when we have somebody hurt or injured in something accidental or something that we would call unnatural, then we blame God. Humans do it all the time, every day. Why didn't God stop that? So again, God is being accused by the accuser. And, and note Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. And the angel of the Lord said to Satan. Now this is Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. Now again, let me repeat it. And the angel of the Lord said to Satan. So I have the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? That's Jesus Christ. Said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That's what he says in Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. Now, what does that lead to? I'll say it again. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You've heard that before. I've said it many times. What, where, where, where else is that in the Bible? That's Jude 9. That's Michael. 
Christ goes on to say that God snatched Israel out of the fire before they were reduced to ashes. Joshua stands before the angel of the Lord in Zechariah 3. And Satan is standing to the right hand of Christ in Zechariah 3. So I have Satan, Christ, and Joshua. Zechariah 3. And Satan is opposing Christ there. So once again, we have him being the accuser of God. And he's accusing also Israel of being filth in Zechariah 3. Filthy garments, because Joshua was standing there next to Christ in filthy garments. And, and Satan is saying that they are hopelessly depraved and filth and sinful and evil and they need to be destroyed. And Christ looks at the filthy garments of Joshua and, and asks that they be removed and he removes them. And instead he replaces those filthy rags or the filthy robes with rich robes. Now, obviously, we've seen this before, haven't we? We have Satan, we have uh, a biblical figure, and we have and we have God, and they're arguing over something. Not arguing, but they're discussing something. And so I want you to see the compliments. What are the compliments to Zechariah 3? Because we covered it a hundred times, thousands of times, it seems to me like, because it's Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 18 to 24, where I have Melchizedek, who is Christ, Hebrews 7. I have Abraham and Satan, Luke 15, and so here I am. I have I've always said, and I hope I've always said, I'll say it again, the reason that we get the Abrahamic covenant is what happened to Abraham in Genesis 14 at the end with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, of course, is in Genesis 15 because he's Christ, Hebrews 7. So, we have Abraham, Satan, and Christ in Genesis 14, 18 through 24. That leads to Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, which is unbelievable. But it also gives us Luke 15, 11 through 31, which we all know. Now, I'm not going to ask you to say what it is because no one can memorize Scripture. People tell me all the time, boy, you've memorized Scripture. No, I haven't. I've researched Scripture. There's a big difference. My ability to bring... I'm not Jack Van Empey. I don't know if he could do it either or if he just had a teleprompter. I'm not sure. But he, to me, was amazing when I was a young boy. But no one can memorize all of Scripture because why? What's the obvious reason? I'm finite. What is Scripture? Infinite. So I'm not going to memorize it. Not going to happen. Okay, where am I? I got off track. Luke 15, 11 through 31. That's the parable of the two sons. The lost son returns, Luke 15:20, says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father does what to the son? What does he do? He kisses him. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. The father kisses the son, his lost son. And he orders that the, his servants bring out the best robe for his son. And he puts a ring on his son, on his hand, and he puts sandals on his feet. So he dresses him, he clothes him in rich garments. And the father celebrates the return of the lost son. He rejoices over this and he says, For his son was dead and is alive again. That's what the father says, Luke 15, 22 through 24. So there are tremendous implications here. So the son has come back. He's filthy. He confesses. 
And his father kisses him, dresses him in rich clothing and, and beautiful clothing, gives him a ring and, and sandals, and, and rejoices and said he was dead and he's alive again. What is that? What If I said somebody is dead and, and is alive again, what would you think happened? What is that? That's That's resurrection. So he's saying that my son has resurrected. Now obviously the Lord God rejoices and weeps with joy over the returning of the lost, whom he saves. He puts on the rich robe, he puts on the ring, he puts the sandals of salvation, grace is given and mercy is given. That's that's the gospel. God does that. Christ does that. Now the question becomes, how do the hyper-absolutist, super-deterministic, predestinationing Calvinists explain the parable of the two sons? How do they explain that? They can't. They won't. But uh, you know, I don't want to digress rant here. But I get mad when I read when I read what they say about these kinds of things. It just makes me mad because it's harmful. So uh, for today, just know that Zechariah three and Luke fifteen are together, just like the whole Bible. Now, how did God know that? How did Jesus Christ know that Zechariah 3 would connect to what his parable of the two, two sons? Now, I know they're called the prodigal son, but it's not the prodigal son. It's about two sons. Not one son, two sons. How did he know it? And, of course, that's a huge duh. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh, John 1, 1 through 4, and somehow he knows every interleague facet of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, John 5, 39. So he takes and puts the parable of the lost or the two sons and he puts it to himself, Joshua, and Satan, which then goes to Melchizedek, Abraham, and Satan. Puts it all together for us. But again, for today, you all, I hope, were screaming, Jude 9, Jude 9, when I said, said the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Because Jude 9 is Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. And more on that later, later being a relative term. As you know, I make a mark. I haven't said that in a long time. Well, I try hard not to say it again. For a while now, how's that? I have been quoting Henry Bergson, time and free will. Because that's going to be so important to understand. Time and free will. They are absolutely tied together. I've put two things on the board that are absolutely fantastic. One is the father kisses the son. And two, Henry Bergson said it's time and free will. They are together. To put it this way, to rephrase it, where there is time, you must have free will. That's what Bergson understood. The theological implications of that are fantastically interesting. Last lecture, number 199, I asked, how much free will will there be in the eternal state? We're going to go to the new city of Jerusalem. There's a new heaven, a new earth. There's a city of Jerusalem that is infinite. How much free will is going to be in there? I wanted you to consider the inhabitants because there's animals there, there's angels there, and there's mankind there. And the number of the animals, Revelation 5.13, the number of the angels, Hebrews 12.12, 12, 
and the number of mankind, Revelation 7, 9, is uncountable. You can't count it. How much free will is in uncountable being? Only the infinite God can count the number of, of all of that. And allow me to repeat, there is time in the eternal state in the new city of Jerusalem. And if there is time in there, and it definitely says there is, it tells us that the fruit is on the, on the trees month by month. So we have time. We don't have darkness, but we have time. And if we have time, what do we have to have? I've already put the premise on the board. We have to have free will. Now, they're going to argue and say, well, what do you mean by that? How can you prove that? Are you some kind of idiot? They say that to me all the time. I get my hate mail still. But where there is time, if there is time, there is free will. Where there is time, there is free will. It cannot be any, any way else because consciousness comes and occurs before motion. I'm going to move my, sometimes my hand's involuntary, but I'm going to move my left hand today because it's really not easy for me to do that anymore because I have nerve damage in this elbow. But my, I thought about moving my hand before I moved my hand. So time is preceded, I'm sorry, motion is preceded by consciousness. Consciousness occurs before motion. Whether that be full conscious motion or subconscious motion, which is the autonomic nervous system. Let me ask it this way. Will we breathe in the new city of Jerusalem? Answer is yes, isn't it? Will our hearts provide blood? Excuse me, i got something stuck in my mouth here. Nice shot. Are the hearts going to beat? We're going to have blood flow. Notice what I said, blood flow. And of course, I measure my blood pressure every single day, usually five to six times a day to make sure that I'm not making any mistakes medically. I also check my heart rate. And what's my heart rate? That's systolic and diastolic uh, functionality. Will we play trumpets? I want to know. Can I play the trumpet in heaven? Finally, well, I don't know if I can play the trumpet. I hope I can play the trumpet. What, what I call playing the trumpet, most people would not call it. They'd say, no one wants to hear that. That's right. There has to be, there has to be a definitive there, isn't there? there contractual capability. But I'm going to play the trumpet. It's not going to be beautiful. I won't make a joyful noise. You'll know it's me. But what is sound? What is it? It's motion. Sound is motion. It's vibration. And all of that is motion. Your blood is moving. Your neurological system is moving. It's going the nervous system. All of that is, is motion. Some of it is, like I said, involuntary. Some of it is voluntary. But consciousness precedes it. If you don't have any consciousness, you don't have anything. Now, I realize that this seems to be elementary, but to the predestining folks out there, these are all great, huge problems. Because time and free will. If there is no free will, there is no freedom to move, then we are in what's called zero time. I won't put that on the board. So time and free will. Time is motion. God, as I've said many, many times, is able to, at his will to see all of time at zero time. Let me put zero time on the board. Because of Isaac Newton. Zero time will get you into this equation of time and free will. Not plus free will. Time and free will. 
And I said many times that God at his will, he can see all of time at zero time, motionlessness. Is that what he can do? He can stop time with his mind in the sense he can see it without motion. And he can see it with motion. He has that capability to do whatever he wants to do. But consciousness precedes motion. That's important for us to know today. Because we're talking about a being that can be outside of time and enter time at the same time. Does that make any sense? I mean, that's God. That's what he can do. And consciousness has to precede motion. Where does consciousness come from? Who's the first first person, the first being with consciousness? And again, he demonstrates that he has complete control of time all throughout the Bible. When did God cause everything to move? When he wanted to make everything move, what did he have to do? If my premise is correct. He had to think it into movement or speak it into movement. He had to do something that caused it to move. Whatever he did to make it move, he had to think first. That's how consciousness works. And he is consciousness. He is the existent one. Okay? And remember, he causes everything to move. Everything, this microphone, this stand, that floor, everything is vibrating. Everything is spinning. Everything is in motion. Everything responds to a resonant frequency. That's what's going on in this creation. is constant, complete motion at all times. So again, we ask the question, does God predestine all things? What does the Calvinist on the, on the absolute outer edge of Calvinism, what does he say? I should point that out a lot. There's some Calvinists that recognize what the problems are. And then there are Calvinists that are way out here by themselves, wandering around, running into each other. What do they say? They say that God predestines all things. That means every single sound, all thoughts, all movement, especially the autonomic nervous system of all living creatures. He's predestined every motion that there is. His omniscience is not causation. He knows it, but he doesn't cause it in that sense. He knows all things, but does he cause all things? That's the question. The extreme position of Calvinism, again, way out there, these guys, they answer yes to that question, that he, he causes all things. That's correct. You're absolutely right about that. If you didn't hear that, Dave interjected that, that it's his consciousness that causes all things, and we have no impact whatsoever on anything. And that's their logic, that he must do this, and if he doesn't do it, then he's not sovereign. That's their big play. And he's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, and therefore God is the causing agent of all evil. Because he has to be, because he's the only one that can cause anything. And, and you're going to say, well, what do you mean? It doesn't make any sense. Look it up, it's what they teach. This is exactly, I'm, I'm giving them word for word, I'm using their words. And it seldom occurs to them that there's no contradiction between omnipotence and free will. I did a big lecture on balance. God puts things in balance. Everything is in balance. Everything is fine-tuned. There's no contradiction between his omnipotence and free will. And they do not recognize that time and free will are an entity. They see time as separate and they see free will as separate. And I'm trying to put them together for you so you understand that they're not separable. If we do not even control our slightest movement at all, are we alive? You can't control any movement. You can't make yourself move in any way. You have no control over movement at all. Are you alive? No, you're not alive. Or are you dead? Now, which one did God say 
what was occurring in Luke 15:24. God rejoices at our being alive. That means if we're alive, then what do we have? We have consciousness. We have the ability to move. Okay? So what is God's definition for alive and God's definition for animals and angels and mankind? How much life is required for God's definition of life? When he says you're alive, what does he mean? Because his definition of alive and our definition of alive are not the same definition. When he says someone is alive, what are they? They're not dead. What's that mean? That means they're saved. When that, when that son, that lost son was declared to be alive, he was being declared saved. That's what Christ was saying. How much motion do we have control over? And why do we have control? Now I'm going to insert uh, what seemingly is a detour question. Can you imagine, can you conceive of a timeless state or condition where there is no time? Can you think of that? Now people say all the time, if I can imagine it, it's true. I want you to imagine a timeless position where no time is there. To repeat, consciousness, conscious thought precedes motion. There's an order here. There's intentionality. And if I have intentionality and I can time it, then I have free will. It's time and free will. Now that may not, I, I probably lost a whole bunch of people right now. Okay, I probably lost everyone right now. I'll try again. If there's a sequence to the motion of a living being, an order, what is the definition of order? You do everything in order. I do everything. I'm doing something in order right now. There's an order to what I'm doing. It's it's all designated by time, by incremental time positions. Everything I have said has a time attached to it. Everything anybody says has time attached to it. Every motion that you have has time attached to it. Time and motion. So... So there's there's a succession, or if you prefer, there's a procession. The mind initiates and the body responds, reveals the thought. How fast does that happen? Now, for some people, it's faster than others. They hit baseballs coming 105 miles an hour. My thought process is not fast enough for me. I couldn't do that. How much delay or how much time between the thought and the movement? What causes the thought? That's important to know. What causes my ability to think? Where did my thinking come from? Where does thinking come from? Who does thinking come from? How does thinking come into existence? What is thinking and how did it happen? Again, this is a mystery of the brain and the mind, the consciousness. Why is there any thought at all? Now, what would the Calvinist say here? He would say we don't really have any thoughts, right? No thoughts. Those aren't our thoughts. Whose thoughts are they? Every th- if God causes everything, every thought's God's thought. We don't have any thoughts. Are we alive? What God says he rejoices because his son is alive. A father rejoices in Luke 15. The son is alive. So again, if we have no thought process, if all the thoughts are his thoughts, and we only think they're our thoughts because we're idiots, we're idiots anyway. But then we don't we don't have life. We have nothing. And what, you see, I made the comment the other day or last week or a couple of weeks ago that uh, they, they think that animals are the same as rocks and plants. Well, that's where they're headed here. That's, what they, that's how they're describing us. We're no different than a rock or a plant. It's not just the animals. They're including all of us. 
thinking and thoughts and consciousness, that exists. We know it exists. It has existence. It's inseparable to existence, as a matter of fact. Who gave thought and the ability to think to animals, angels, and mankind? Because it has to be given. You can't come up with any process where it emerges on its own. You just can't do it. You can try. You can pretend, but it's not true. Is there any freedom of thought at all? Are are the maniacal, absolutist, determinists right about this? When they insist there is no freedom, that time is an illusion, that's Einstein's position, there's no thinking, there's no, no motion, it isn't predestined. And that, my friends, is called fatalism in philosophy and logic. That's Einstein. Einstein was a fatalist. My goal for today, yea, a goal was to bring you to contemplate the connectivity of time and thought and consciousness and time and therefore free will and time. That's what I'm trying to get you to do. Thanks for thinking about it. Ruminate. Meditate on it. Start figuring it out on your own. Because without time and free will, there will be no existence. Freedom is critical to existence to being alive. Fatalism asserts that the future events which, which are in time are unavoidable. There's nothing you can do to change anything. You have no impact whatsoever on your life or anybody else's life. It's all predestined. Isaac Newton realized that there was an absolute time. Because he knew that time came from a person. And that person has got the clock, the absolute time clock. You'll find writings where philosophers debate the freezing of time, the stopping of time, birds frozen in flight, all particles at the quantum level coming to a complete stop. Try to imagine a timeless, motionless condition. See if you can do it. Obvious question. In a stop, in a frozen position, stopping everything, is there time? I've stopped everything. I'm frozen. Have I stopped time? Can I stop time? Is what I'm asking you. Good answer, Dave. That's a trick question. So, Is there a time, here's the obvious question, is there such a thing as a time that is independent from all motion and change? Now think about this for a second. Be careful. He might be laying a trap. Is absolute time autonomous from the events of time? Let me ask you this. If what we see as time is paralyzed, is transfixed, does time elapse while that time is transfixed? In other words, do I have time and then I have absolute time? That's what Newton was saying. If he stops time and he can stop time, does time does his time keep running? How good a clock is he? So you begin to see the deity element of time when you begin these, these kinds of questions. So what are the theological implications of absolute time is what I'm asking you. If everything is unavoidable and everything is predestined, again, why is there any time at all? We should have time is useless in a predestined condition. This would be a good good place to read a letter from Sharon from Texas. So I'm going to do this really fast. She writes to me. I found three Bible versions, the Disciple Literal New Testament. The, uh, the I can't remember what this one is. Uh, oh, Holman Christian, Christian Standard. I just have the I just have the DLNT and the Transline New Testament. These are literary literal Greek translations. What she she found three literal Greek. Three literal Greek translations, and they all translate John 6:70. One of you is the devil, and that's absolutely correct way to say it. Christ looked around his apostles, says, "I've chosen all of you, and one of you is Satan." Now, again, 
Christ knew that Satan and, and Judas would, would combine. And that's what she wrote. I found three Bible verses that said, one of you is the devil. But with Judas being a disciple and the master telling them multiple times that he would have to die, why would Satan pursue that in light of 1 Corinthians 2.8? So let's read 1 Corinthians 2.8. Okay? I'll start at 7. But we speak, the, uh, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before time, the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For the, what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him. No one, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. That's what the Bible says. So what's the chances that Satan, and of course that was written after the crucifixion. So what is the chances that Satan and, and Judas could have figured out the crucifixion of Christ prior to the crucifixion? That's one of the greatest mysteries, right? And then she says, uh, let's see. Okay, and then I answer back. I say, hi, Sharon. Satan Judas are powerful and intelligent, as, uh, as powerful and intelligent as they are. They could not comprehend the hypostatic union. They could not figure out God is man and God, fully God, fully man. No one could figure that out. It's the greatest mystery of all. It's the most hidden. It's the deepest mystery. No one can get it. Can't be God. 1 Timothy 3.16. And, and I write, uh, Satan likely had some basic understanding, I would suggest, and elementary awareness. Also, Satan Judas, because they're combined together, and they're incredibly powerful. Would each have information, they'd each possess information about the person that's Christ. Judas would know Christ because he's seen him every day. And he's seen what he, what he does and how he does it, what he speaks, how he speaks, what he speaks, how he moves. But as smart as they were, and again, obviously they're combined together, they have a lot of information into the inroads into the plan of God. The cup of Gethsemane was not witnessed by Satan and Judas. They did not see Christ mourn over the cup of Gethsemane. They didn't see his great sorrow. So they didn't have they didn't have a functioning level of Christ's intentions, Matthew sixteen, twenty two through twenty three. And and of course they all had they had the Adam typology, they had the sacrifice through death, and, and they have all kinds of things. But they we see dimly through blurred glass, first Corinthians thirteen twelve. Due to Satan with their evil mindset, there's no way they could figure that out. There's no way they could figure out the seven thousand age, or the seven 1,000 age periods either. They couldn't get that. That's a time-based system. And they're in times inside of time. So anyway, let me read this part. Satan Judas figured out really fast. They figured out Zechariah 11.13. That's the throwing of the silver. They figured out Second Samuel 24. They figured out Exodus 30, 11-16 really fast. And they figured out that Judas had to hang himself from a tree, Zechariah 11.13. And they did it. So they're not dumb. But they don't have the capacity that everyone would hope that they have. I, I go on to tell her that I really, she asked a bunch of questions. She said, she wrote back, wow, an answer. And I didn't read all of it. Since Lucifer was incredibly beautiful, talented, intelligent, wouldn't he, the required death of an animal in Eden, to cover the nakedness of the man and the woman, make him aware that death was necessary? Again, she said, you told me to ask why. 
And I did. I do tell her to ask why. I did say, if she keeps this up, she can take over. That's what you do. You ask why as much as you can. Anyway, I just wanted to read that because that, that I, I answer all those questions. Let me give you the references that I gave to her. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Zechariah 11, 13. 2 Samuel 24. Exodus 30, 11 through 16. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Uh, let me find all the rest of them. Job 1.6, obviously. Matthew 4.11. Those are the those are the verses just to say, 1 Timothy 3.16. Did they know ahead of time what what Christ's plan was? Okay. And I hope you count all the questions when you when you ask stuff like that. And we should begin, as I said. The wisdom of God is a mystery. It's a hidden mystery. The wisdom is ordained before time. None of the rulers knew the mysteries of God. None of them. When he says rulers, he means rulers, angelic rulers and human rulers. No one knows the things of God except the Holy Spirit of God. And obviously this wisdom, this ordained wisdom, in other words, this is something that happens before time. And that is the lamb slain, Revelation 5.12. The Lamb slain before the foundations, and time is a foundation, Revelation 13.8, John 17.22-26. And, and again, I, I realize that, that John wrote the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Almost all Lamb of God references, except for maybe one in Isaiah, are written by John in the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible, but it was, it was the last one written, in my view. That's why it's there. So Satan had no access to John's wisdom. And John's wisdom comes from being in heaven and being with Christ and having the Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask that question, John 14:6. The only way to know this is hidden mystery. These hidden ministries is where the Holy Spirit of God reveal it to teach it to us, John 14:26. The Comforter, the whole God, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring it to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said to you. Those are the words of Christ. And I'm not going in order for those wishing otherwise, because I, I freely choose not to. I'm a contrarian. Sorry, not really. Sorry in my approach. How does the cup of Gethsemane connect to the delivery and surrender of Christ? Satan did not see the cup of Gethsemane. And if he had seen it, would he, made, would he have made adjustments? And he has a disadvantage because Christ is omniscient and therefore knows everywhere that Satan is and everything that Satan is thinking. He searches the mind. Now, he doesn't cause the thoughts. He sees the thoughts. Big difference. But Satan is not omniscient, nor is Judas and Satan combined omniscient. They did not see the cup of Gethsemane. So I'm asking the question, how does the cup of Gethsemane connect to the delivery and the surrender of Christ? Because it does. Christ being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, knew where Judas Satan were at all times. He has the original global positioning location system. And his is amazing. So once again, it's not a fair fight here. This Christ versus Satan thing, this is not a fair fight. One has omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, and omnipotence, and the other one doesn't and is inside of time. The first one's outside of time, thought of time, gave us time. Okay, it's beyond debate, it's beyond controversy that whoever was watching, witnessing the events of the Gethsemane, you can't discard them and what they were watching and what they were thinking. Don't, don't think Gethsemane, 
I say all the time. Somewhere I hope I said it in here. Stop thinking this is about us, me, and you. It's not. There's the animal kingdom. Actually, the order is the angel, angelic realm, the animal kingdom, and the humans come in third, last place. And that's the order. There's a reason for that order. Okay. The angelic realm would have seen the sadness that of Christ, Matthew 26, 37 through 45. They would have seen how sorrowful he was, how much mourning he had, how much distress he had. God weeps for the lost. And he knew that cup. They, they looked at that cup and they probably were able to figure out some things about it, just like we're able to figure out some things about it. And... Uh, and they saw God's foreknowledge. They saw, or Christ's foreknowledge. They saw his impending confrontation with the Roman army. And they saw the temple guard of the Pharisees. They saw all of that. And they saw the cup of Gethsemane come precede all of that. Now remember that Christ chose Judas. The seed of the woman chose the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, to deliver him to be crucified. He wanted Judas to deliver him. Now he couldn't. He didn't force Judas to, to deliver him. He didn't predestine it. He knew it would happen, maybe. But that doesn't cause it. But that's what the plan was, was to have Judas and Satan deliver him for his crucifixion. And so you have to ask the question, if I'm correct, why was it, and I, shouldn't, I should have stopped there, why was it God's plan for Satan and Judas to deliver Jesus Christ? It seems counterintuitive, it seems illogical, which is our first clue that this uh, returns us to the day that the angels assembled in Job 1 through 6. Job 1, Job 1 through 6. So in other words, what I'm saying to you is the deliverance issue, having Satan and Judas combined into one being, deliver Christ after the cup of Gethsemane, uh, had something to do with Job 1 through 6. To boil it down, it is perfectly correct to say say it this way. God chose Satan to deliver God. Now, why would he do that? Of all the people he could pick to deliver him for the crucifixion, he picked Satan and Judas. And they're combined in one. Why did he do that? And so that, let me say it again. Perfectly correct to say that God chose Satan to deliver God so that God could lay down God's life since it's impossible for anyone to take God's life. John 10, 17 through 18. So you've got to put all those pieces together. If I'm right, and this returns to Job 1.6, the faithful angels and the fallen angels gathered to listen to Satan's hedge lie and to watch and learn and listen to Job's response to Satan's hedge lie. And never did Job curse God or blame God or charge God with wrong. And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2.10. So I have the typological Job, or what we call the Job prophecy here. The servant of God, I'm going to call Job this, the suffering servant, because he suffered greatly. So I have a suffering servant of God. Okay? And I got Isaiah 52.13-15. Isaiah 53.1-3 now are on, on the table. And again, he says in Job 1.8, there's none like Job, there's none like Job, and there's none like who? Christ. So I have the Job prophecy, Job's typological prophecy. A blameless and upright man who shuns evil, God says about Job. And he's saying it about Christ himself. 
Christ, there's none like Christ. Christ is a blameless, blameless and upright man who shuns evil. Christ is sinless. Does anyone disagree with the statement that Christ is sinless? No hands raised. Congratulations. Does anyone disagree with the statement that Christ shuns evil? Because that's what he says about Job. If Christ shuns evil, and Christ is God, then God shuns evil. Would we agree with that? Basic transitive property. How come, or how can the predestination then, the predestinationists, then assert that God decreed evil if he shuns evil? And what does shun evil mean? He doesn't have any evil. So how can he order evil if he has no evil? You have to put evil inside of God, and he says in, in the Job typological positioning that he shuns evil. Note that Job could not be killed. Satan could not take his life. Job 1.12, Job 2.6. Can you take God's life? No, you can't. I'm going to start speeding up. God says to Satan with respect to Job, in Job 2.6, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You can't kill him. Because that would ruin the typology, wouldn't it? Not ruin it, but definitely make it non-topological. Typological. So what is the behold? Job has the will to stay the servant of God. Job resisted. He's resistance free. His resistance is free will. But the behold is the Job prophecy. When God says behold the angelic before the angelic host, he is telling them that Job is a prophecy. Don't pass by that. Okay. The suffering servant. Christ himself in his plan of salvation has the delivering detail of Satan delivers Christ. The point, yea, a point. If the faithful angels are watching at Gethsemane, they would immediately be reminded of Job 1.6. Because that's what happened in Job 1.6 through 2.10 and Job 1.1 through 5. Because Job in Job 1.1 through 5, Job sanctified his sons and daughters and animals. Job would rise up early in the morning after the feast and offer to the Lord God for the sins of his sons and his daughters, Job 1.1 through 5. So, so Job, Job, Job is is offering the sins of his sons and daughters to God. That's what he's doing. Now, that's Christ, isn't it? Being portrayed at Gethsemane, the angels would be seeing the pattern of Job replayed: the suffering, suffering servant as the sin offering, bringing the sins of his children. First John three one. And perhaps you've begun to see what the angels have saw. I hope you do. I should interject that mostly the fallen angels did not understand the cup of Gethsemane. They didn't, they didn't see it. They didn't understand it. Nor Satan and his child, or his seed, delivering the sin offering. Because that's what's happening. Satan and his child, his seed, Judas, is delivering the sin offering. Because, duh, the fallen angels of Jude 6 and Genesis 6, they're what? Where are they? They're already imprisoned. They didn't get to see any of this stuff. But now you know what Jesus proclaimed to them at 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, why he said it. Because they didn't see it. So he goes and tells them what happened. Probably starting at the cup of Gethsemane. And going all the way through to the resurrection. And why are there more demons in the abyss? That explains the pigs drowned, why the pigs drowned themselves. What did the pigs know and when did the pigs know it? Mark 5, 1 through 13, Matthew 8, 28 through 34, Luke 8, 31. The demons begged God, they begged God, demons begged God not to send them into the abyss. Instead, allow them to enter the pigs. Now, that 
Christ did allow them to enter the pigs, didn't he? Is that a decision of his will? Absolutely it is. Don't put us in the abyss. Put us in the pigs. And Christ said, okay. I'll let you go into the pigs. And the pigs did what? God allowed the Lord, the Lord God allowed the fallen angels to possess the pigs. And then what did the pigs do? They violently, it says, immediately ran and drowned themselves. So why did the pigs do that? You've got to have a good reason. You think it's simple? It's not simple. It's drowning pigs. The pigs know something. The angels, the fallen angels, thought going into the pigs was a great idea. Pigs had a, had a countermeasure. Coming into us, we're drowning ourselves. Then where do you end up? Anyway, back to the subject. The faithful angels led by Michael were watching this latest confrontation between God and Satan just as they had before at Matthew 4:11, And then they saw Christ, Jesus, God, act. 2.32 appeared to concede, to acquiesce to Satan, but instead it was more drowning pigs here. What was happening to Satan and Judas was drowning pigs. They thought they had a plan, that they had a good plan, turned out to be drowning pigs. And Satan and Judas figured out really fast, drowning pigs is a bad deal, we've got to make a move. Jesus God had Satan deliver the solution to sin. Who's the solution to sin? That's him. He had, him, he had Satan deliver him, him the solution to sin, the only sin offering that truly eternally covers sin, the animals do not cover eternally. They're not, they're not able. I really watch my time going. But the sin of Christ is the only thing that, that covers sin and death. Therefore, the Satan participation is in the resurrection of the saved. He participates in the resurrection of the saved, the redemption of the saved, by, by taking Christ and, and sending... And, Delivering him to his crucifixion. Hey, what is required to be in the presence of the Holy God of all things? What do you have to have? You're going to be in front of God. You're going to have to have something. What do you have to have? If you don't have it, oops. The only thing that you can have, what is the reconciliation process? What's the essential component? That would be the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ. First John 1, 7, the blood of Christ only purifies us from sin. The blood of Christ is the only life blood. Satan delivers the only thing that's living, the only lifeblood possible to be crucified. Christ has him do that. Here, deliver me. Now, reconstitute the occasion. Jesus wills that he sheds his blood, both before the scourging and then the attaching himself to the wooden cross, which that, as you know, make the mark, explains the crimson worm of Job 4.7, Psalm 22.6. God prepared a worm to kill the poison plant, and Christ declares that he is the prepared worm that kills the poison plant. And he would like the poison plant to walk him up to the crucifixion, walk him up to the crucifixion process. Did Satan have any of that figured out? Jonah 4, 7, Psalm 22, 6. The God-man. Fully God, fully wood. Attaching himself to humanity. Wood is a, is a, a statement for humanity. Nope, I don't think he did it. Not at the time of the deliverance. Because he, he delivered him. Now they realize really fast. They're, they're quick. So the shedding of God's blood is to be accompanied by the one who brought sin and death to the angelic realm, the animal realm, and to the human realm in the sense that Satan caused Genesis 3.14. This, because you have done this, God says. And yes, I know Romans 5.14.15. Physical death came from Adam, but eternal death, the second death, came through Satan. 
and therefore he is cursed more than anything. Genesis uh, 3.14. Satan and his seed are most certainly confused um, at Luke 22.48. Jesus says, asked Satan and Judas this question. Are you delivering the Son of Man with a kiss? Now remember, the Father kisses the Son. Luke 8.15. And how did Satan and Judas react to that? I think they, they eventually they went rut roll. Because Christ knew that they were going to deliver him with a kiss. Okay, that's a big problem. When the angels saw that happen, what did they think? I want to know how Judas figured out who Christ was, who was one to kiss. Because Christ can hide himself really well. So what did, what, what did Christ do that allowed Satan to come, come to Christ himself? Okay. Uh, can I rephrase this? I, this is something I, I thought about rephrasing. I wanted to rephrase it this way. Luke 22:48, which is not biblical, and don't give me any... I just wanted to know, could Christ have said, are you two idiots actually handing me over with a kiss? Really, this is your plan? Obviously, Satan kissing God through Judas has some great significance. It's got some hidden symbolism. Who would know what the kiss meant? Raise your hand if you know what the kiss meant. I could ask that to all the world, and I bet you no one would raise their hand. I'm going to raise my hand. I know what the kiss meant. I know what the significance was. The animals wouldn't aren't involved in this. The Pharisees are certainly not involved in this. And if you're yelling, the angels, the angels, the faithful angels, you win another Christian merit badge. They would know what the significance of the kiss was. To be serious for a minute, just a minute, don't panic. The Bible most assuredly speaks of mankind's fallen state and God's will that none perish, that all come to reconciliation through the blood of Christ. But we err again when we cast aside the angels and the animals and we think that we're the ones that... that, that this is all about us. It's not all about us. And the angels saw that kiss and they knew immediately, oh my gosh, Satan kissed Christ through Judas. Satan Judas kissed Christ. So I want you to release the narcissism. If you're studying the Bible out there thinking it's all about me, it's never about us. It's about Christ, and, and Christ transcends all the kingdom. Am I convinced that the kiss from Satan was a message to the angelic host? Job 1.6? Oh yeah, I am. I've said in the past that Judas kissed God because it was a statement of farewell, which it kind of is, sort of. Judas likely thought that Christ would resist John 18.6 because Christ sure resists in John 18.6. Judas, Satan, the first of the slain, John, 2 Thessalonians 2.8-12, they, they had to think about that. Now, again, those passages hadn't been written yet. So they didn't know they're there. Revelation 19.11-21, Christ makes war. Revelation 19.11. But that was not the, the plan here. Not the purpose of Christ at this time. I submit the faithful angels were stunned by Christ accepting his crucifixion. I think that stunned them. He's going he's to be kissed. He's going to have Satan walk him to the crucifixion. And he's going to take the crucifixion. Christ had declared his deity over and over and over again. John 10, 17 through 18. John 10 through 30. But they hadn't been written yet. So Satan had to be present when God, Christ is declaring his deity. And the angels had to be in a position where they heard it. And they probably were, but did they understand it? Again, it's complicated. It's the hidden deep mystery. The most hidden deep mystery of all time. Of every time. Okay? 
I think, and he kept repeating, of course, as we know, that I am that I am, the ego in me. Revelation, I'm sorry, Exodus 13, or 3, I'm sorry, Exodus 3.14. That When he said that in Exodus 3.14, that erased all the doubt for the angels. So they had some comprehension. And if they thought, he's, how's he going to die? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to an angel. If this is the I am that I am. He's outside of time. How is it that he died? Can't happen. Can't happen. And he even says so. Christ says, I can go get all, all the angels I need to stop this. So can't, he can't die. And they're ready to go. I can guarantee you they were ready to go. But they knew something. And, and Satan Judas likewise knew something. Matthew 26.53 So Jesus had Satan participate in his redemptive work. and said, Why? Why is he doing that? Satan gave Christ to the Pharisees who are what? What are they? They're the dumbest people that ever lived. They try to set a trap and a trap and a trap and they never get it done. They always fail. Judas tried to abort, Matthew 27, 3, and the Pharisees didn't care. And they thought, we got it made here. We're killing this guy and we don't care what the problem is. We don't care if he's innocent or guilty or if he's the right guy or the wrong guy. We're going to kill somebody. And if, if the other guy shows up again, we'll say he's not the same guy. It's a different guy. We killed the real guy. But the point is, yea, a point. How did all of this go over with the faithful angels? What did they see? What did they think? Satan and Judas were a mess. They were desperate. They were kissing God. They're throwing the silver. They're attempting to halt the crucifixion. They're handing Christ over to complete morons. Not going well for this genius. Remember, Michael says, I can't handle you. And then Michael sees this. Something changed to make Michael say, I can take him in Revelation 12. The kissing of God by Satan must have happened before. This isn't the first time that Satan kisses God. Can't be. Matthew 26:49 is not the first time. The first time was the day that Satan fell. He kissed God. Because remember, I said it's a farewell kiss for Judas. So it's going to be a farewell kiss for Satan. In a sense, and I'll get to that in a couple of weeks. It's not the kiss of betrayal because he can't betray omniscience and omnipresence. He just can't do that. It's not impulsive. This, I'm going to say really fast. There's kiss. I don't have enough time. And there's hedge. i got to get rid of the isses. Kiss and hedge. Time and free will. He kissed God, Satan did. Can I prove it? Nope. Can't prove it. Wasn't there. Can I figure it out? Yeah, I can. It's not impulsive. It's not uh, contemplated. It's not, it, 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 in other words, you didn't think about it very long in the sense that we think. It's a strategic move. He wasn't kissing God for affection. It was strategic. And again, the kiss in the hedge so what do we have to do here? We have to find out who else has kissed God. Has anybody else kissed God? Oh, yeah. So what do we got to do? We go find all the kisses. Anyway, the angels, Michael witnessed otherwise. Uh, they saw that Christ was not defeated. The kiss didn't work. What the kiss meant to them, what the kiss meant from Satan is that I have defeated, not defeated, I have made it impossible for you to get out of here in the sense that you're going to have to admit something you don't want to admit. That's what Satan is doing. 
But Christ was not in ruin. His death was instead a death of triumph. Satan had not brought the kiss of stalemate, if you want to think of it that way, the kiss of gridlock. He did not bring that. It didn't work. Satan had not contributed to his own, to the demise of God in respect of intellectually. He created, he, he contributed to his own demise, his own defeat, and the angels saw it. You know, you didn't, it didn't work. This didn't work. Satan was just exposed then as another angel, not equal, not like the Most High, but stripped naked, used, unaware, one who was celebrated, was celebrating prematurely. He mocked by the kiss. The kiss is a mocking move. This is the second time he's done it. He's clueless to what Jesus was doing, and the angels saw it all. And again, ultimately, this becomes Revelation 12.7. So, okay, so why must Satan be released, huh? I have covered this before, but it's relevant to the kiss and the hedge. Notice that God places a hedge not around Job, not around mankind, not around the angels, but he does it around Satan, puts him into a place for a thousand years. He hedges him. He restrains Satan's free will. Satan does not have access to humanity, nor the faithful angels, nor the animals. He can't get anywhere. And that's also true in Revelation 9, where the demons and the pig demons and all of that happens. Jude 6, Genesis 6, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. So God does restrain evil. He will end evil in the sense that he separates the darkness from the light. That's what he does. He doesn't destroy anything. He doesn't annihilate anything. He separates the new city of Jerusalem from the lake of fire. Separation, not annihilation. The millennial rule of God on earth, Jesus God. And I should say this. Why didn't they just seize Christ? They grabbed him. They didn't know who he was. The problem with grabbing Christ is that he can walk through you. Luke 4.30, John 7.30, John 10.39. You can try to grab Christ all you want, but the only ones that are going to deliver me is due to Satan. So they, they, they knew that. And, and again, the hedge is Satan's lie that Job had no free will. And that, and that God had placed a hedge around him, and that removes Job's free will. But then, then God says there's no hedge. Go do what you got to do, baby. There's no hedge here. So his hedge lie was exposed as a lie. So I have that and the kiss now together. The millennial rule of God on earth, Jesus God, ends after a thousand years. How many people believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty, the Creator of all things? John 1, 1 through 4, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He's been on, on the throne for a thousand years. You can see him. You can hear him. You can... Watch him. You can do everything. There he is. How many people believe that that's Creator God? I'm going to say everybody believes it. Everybody believes it. There he is. And the answer is obvious. Unanimity. Not a consensus. Not a majority. But all believe that Christ is God. And all have seen him. He has shepherded them. for Rule rule with a rod of iron means to shepherd them. Not rule in the way we think rule, but shepherd. Because it's a rod, a shepherd's hook of iron. Revelation 19.15. Therefore, the question from the atheistic evolutionists has been proven to be a lie by releasing Satan. The stale, tired arguments of the physicalists, especially the ones that say God cannot be seen, thus he doesn't exist. If I can't see him, it doesn't exist. There's lots of things you don't see, but you know they exist. Thought. Why doesn't he show himself? And then and only then I'll believe. They tell me that all the time. Well, a thousand years of God on his high mountain on earth, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, with all the nations coming to worship him in Jerusalem, Micah 4, 2 through 5. 
Jesus Christ being worshipped, the Word made flesh, John 1, 1 through 4, obviously didn't go well. Mixed results. I got God on earth, and what do I have at the end of this? I got war. And Satan must be released. Satan will be released, the Bible says, Revelation 27 and and the 20, verse 7, and Satan will go out to deceive the nations. What's his deception? The obvious question, what is Satan's lie now this time? What's his deception? What deception has he has? Is it different or is it the same one? We can eliminate the God doesn't exist fabrication. That's gone. So somehow Satan is able to mass an army that numbers as the sand on the beaches, Revelation 28. And this army comes to invade Jerusalem and surrounds the city of Jerusalem and the mountain of God. That's what happens at the end. Now what are they thinking, Revelation 13.4? What are they thinking? It seems the most feasible that the new deception is the same as the old deception. Same day, different, you know, what are they saying? I can't even remember. There's no shortage of people, fans on the beach. They, and they all hate and reject Jesus Christ. They hate Him. They want to kill Him. Romans 1.29. In the millennium, they know God, Romans 1.21. They exchange the truth of Christ for the lie of Satan, Romans 1.24-25, 2 Thessalonians 2.8-12. Why do they do that? Well, they do. Why do they hate the one who is life itself? They hate life. John 11.25, John 8.12. Seems counterproductive to me, but I don't think like them. Clearly, they want to be evil. They've been milling around for a thousand years, and now they want to be evil. They don't want to be just a little bit evil. They want to be really evil. Like who? They, want, they, they don't want to be like the saved. They want to be like, they want to be like the demons. They're parodying the fallen angels who also desire to be wicked at all times. Genesis 6. Every thought continually evil. That's what they want. And somehow they believe Christ is going to allow this unending vile depravity. This evil free will. Who could have convinced him of that? Because he's been locked up. Now he deceives them down the stretch. But they've obviously come under this idea way before he got out. How long did it take him to get them all organized? What kind of weaponry did they attack with? How intelligent are these people? What's their average age? It's less than 100. Because if it was over 100, they'd be gone, wouldn't they? There's no sickness. There's no decay. What does this prove, the fact that Satan was released and this happened to the faithful angels and to the saints? i got to say this before I shut it down. The woman kisses the feet of Christ, Luke 7, 45 through 47. I have a woman who kisses Christ's feet and she doesn't stop. She's kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him over and over and over. Christ declares her sins forgiven because she's kissing him. Oh my gosh. Okay, now we're on to something. The father kisses the lost son and declares him to be alive. That's forgiving sin. And Judas, Satan, kiss Christ. What are they doing? How's it all fit? Therefore, the Satan kiss is attached to the hedge lie. Kiss and hedge. Somehow that hedge lie and this kiss are there. And I don't have time to explain it. I'll I'll explain it on the 27th, but I hope I gave you enough to you get it. The hedge lie is that God decrees evil and God predestines evil. That's what the hedge lie is. And the kiss has something to do with that. The kiss is forgiveness of sin. Remember, Satan says, I don't have any adversity coming. It's on 10.
I'm not, I don't have any accountability. And I want to kiss you. And you're the one that does what? You save by doing what? Forgiving sin. You forgave the sin of the woman who's kissing your feet. You forgave the lost son who's kissing, and you kiss him. And I'm kissing you. So he's got that all worked together. All that begins to explain why Christ chose Judas and Satan to deliver him to the cross at Golgotha. Remember, this is Golgotha. He's going to be crucified on top of the head of Goliath. Okay, got through it. Yes. Barely made it. Remember now thy Creator In the days of thy youth Before the golden bowl breaks Or the silver cords loosed Before the housekeeper treads are done Remember now thy creator Before the evil days come When the evil days come And the dark years draw nigh When the sun, moon, and stars Give no light to the sky Before you make that last journey On to man's long, long home Remember now thy Creator before the funeral bell tolls When the funeral bell tolls And the dark shadows creep And the mourners stand by The closed doors in the street Yeah, that day will soon come In that much you can trust Remember now thy Creator Before the flesh turns to dust For the dust shall go down To the earth once again And then the Spirit returns Back to God where it came 
Before you meet him as the judge 